Amen. Well, it's great to see everybody here this morning on this uh, gorgeous Lord's Day uh, that God has given to us. It's uh, always exciting to, to be here on the Lord's Day to gather with God's people. I hope you look forward to it um, every week as much as I do, to fellowship together, to praise God's name, and uh, to open His Word together. Uh, last Sunday, if you're visiting here with us, we got started in a, in a study of the book of Second Peter last week. So uh, you've come at a good time. If you're visiting, you're kind of uh, right at the threshold of, of a study of a new book of the Bible. And uh, we've, we've titled this series, Know and Grow. And uh, we introduced the book last week and looked at the first couple of verses. And uh, this last week, I posted some notes online of Second Peter that I've written uh, that might be helpful to you. I mentioned last week how a lot of people dispute that Peter actually wrote this book. And uh, so I put just a few paragraphs on there that I've written about that that you might want to take time to look at if you're interested in that. But we saw last time that the Apostle Peter here in 2 Peter is writing to the same audience that he wrote to in 1 Peter. And uh, so this is his second letter to these believers who live in uh, the modern-day nation of Turkey. And uh, we also saw that this is Peter's swan song. This is kind of uh, his uh, last will and testament. These are his last words, his last inspired words, because down in verse 14 of chapter 1, we see that uh, that the time of his execution by the Roman Empire is imminent. So this letter then has an added sense, I think, of urgency and intensity uh, for us as God's people. And remember we said last time that the churches that Peter is writing to here are besieged by false teaching. That's really kind of the main occasion really for this letter is the false teaching that they're uh, being subjected to. And so that's really the focus of the book. And chapter 2, obviously right in between chapters 1 and 3, is really the heart then or the core of this letter. And uh, the basic weapon that Peter gives us to counteract that false teaching is knowledge. Uh, Various forms of the word knowledge or know are found 16 times in this book. We saw last time that the beginning of the book and the end of the book both highlight the idea of knowledge and of growing um, in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. So that's why we've titled this series, uh, To Know and Grow. Now there's three main things Peter wants these believers and wants us to know. He wants us to know our salvation, he wants us to know the adversaries, these false teachers, and he wants us to know the future of what's coming. And to, to kind of alliterate it, I've got, he wants us to know our salvation, he wants us to know the seducers, and he wants us to know uh, the second coming. So before Peter takes on the false teachers, he begins with our salvation. Because above everything else, he wants us to understand our salvation, and he wants us to be growing spiritually. And it's interesting, if you read 1 Peter, he starts in the same place. He starts by grounding them and grounding us in our salvation. And so the key thought, really, in this book is that growing Christians are knowing Christians. You've heard it said, I'm sure those of you that are sports fans, that a good defense is often the best offense. We could also say that a good offense is also the best defense. And that's really Peter's position here in this letter. He doesn't begin so much by warning them about the false teachers and going on the defense, but he begins on the offense, if you will by reminding them and by reminding us of the basics of authentic Christianity. So here at the beginning of this letter, Peter is on the offensive because he he says that knowing our salvation and growing in Jesus Christ will be the best defense for you and me um, against false teaching. Now we said last time verses 1 to 11 is one long sentence. It's all about our salvation. We saw the source of our salvation last time. Uh, We have received faith. 
We saw the standing of it. Uh, the faith that we've received is the same kind as the apostles. It's the same standing. We saw the substance of our salvation. It's the, the righteousness that God gives to us, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. We saw it spread in that as we grow in the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus, that we grow in grace and peace. They're, they're multiplied to us. They, they increase in our lives. So verses 3 and 4, our text for this morning, we come now to the sufficiency of our salvation. Verses 3 and 4 are about our sufficient salvation. Now I'm going to read these verses here in a moment, but it's been well said that these two verses, verses 3 and 4, are a mouthful, a mindful, and a heartful. And you'll see it as I read these two verses. They're, they're packed with truth, and our uh, joy this morning is to take these verses apart and see how they relate together and to access the message of these verses uh, for our lives. So let me read 2 Peter uh, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. Seeing that his divine power has granted us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Oh, may the Lord write his eternal word on our hearts this morning. Years ago, a magazine reporter visited a, a wealthy rancher and said, I'd like to do a magazine story on your career as a sheep rancher. He said, I've heard that uh, yours is a true rags to riches tale, and I'd like to find out the, the secret of your success. So the rancher said, fine, I'm happy to tell you about it. And he said, the, the reporter said, I understand you own several hundred thousand sheep. Your ranch covers half the county, and your net worth is, is way up in the hundreds of millions. He said, yet I hear that 20 years ago, you started out with just one sheep. And the, the, the rancher said, not only that, he says, but in those days, my wife and I didn't have a roof over our heads or a dollar to our name. So we sheared that one sheep and sold the wool. And we used that money to buy another sheep. The reporter said, well, then what happened? He said, well, the next spring, one of our sheep gave birth to two lambs. Then we had four sheep. We sheared them and used the money to buy two more sheep, and that gave us a total of six sheep. He said, well, then what? Well, so the next spring, we had six more lambs. So now we had, six, we had uh, uh, 12 sheep to shear, sold the wool, and bought more sheep. And so the reporter says, okay, now we're finally getting to the secret of your success. The rancher said, that's right. And he said, the next year, and the reporter interrupted and said, I know, I know, you sold more wool and bought more sheep. And the old rancher in his drawl said, nope. He says, that was the year my father-in-law died and left us $50 million. <laughs> now, that's the true way to success in life, right? That's the secret of success. But I, but I like that story because in many ways, the same is true for us as believers in Jesus Christ. If someone were to ask us, you know, what's the secret of our success? The secret of our success is not what we've done. The secret of our success is not what we've earned, but it's in the abundant spiritual riches that God has lavished upon us uh, in Jesus Christ. The moment we take Jesus Christ as our Savior, God gives us unimaginable, unlimited spiritual riches, really beyond our ability to calculate. God gives us everything we need and so that's the title of this morning's message. It's everything you need. And this is a very important, essential, basic truth that every one of us need to lay hold of. That as a believer in Jesus Christ, you and I 
have everything uh, that we need. Now, I've got three simple points you can see in your outline there this morning to unpack these verses. We see God's power, God's promises, and then God's purpose in all of this. So we start with God's power, verse 3, seeing that His divine power has granted to us. Now, you'll notice the beginning of this verse says that His divine power. So obviously, it's referring back to something previously said. So when it says His divine power, commentators go back and forth over whether this is Jesus' power or God's power. Now, you'll notice in verse 2, it says, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, seeing that His divine power. So the nearest antecedent to His is Jesus. And so a lot of commentators focus on the fact it's talking about Jesus' power. But, of course, Jesus is God. And in verse 2, he refers to God and Jesus. So I think both are in view here. There's no real clear distinction, I think, necessarily being made. It's simply telling us that God has done this for us. But certainly God has done it uh, through Christ. But it says, seeing his divine power has granted to us. Now, the word there has granted, the, the Greek verb there is in the perfect tense, and it's a passive verb. So the idea of a passive obviously means we don't do something to get it. God has simply given it to us. He's granted it to us. And the perfect tense in Greek means something that's happened in the past and the results are still continuing or ongoing or still good. So what it's saying here is that God sometime in the past has granted to us everything we need and it still holds good now. And of course, we'll see in a moment that time when he gave it to us is the moment of our salvation. And you'll notice it says, God has, by his power, has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness. So what has God given to us spiritually? He's given us, it says, everything. So your salvation and my salvation is all-inclusive. We have everything we need. Nothing is missing that you or I need to live a spiritual life. So God's divine power gives you everything you need, not half of what you need, not most of what you need, not a lot of what you need. He has given to you everything you need. The gospel is sufficient. We have a sufficient salvation. There'll never be a power shortage in the Christian life. Now, why has he done this? It says he's granted to us everything, notice, pertaining to life and godliness, Now, you can really put those together. A lot of translations do and say, God has given us everything we need to live a godly life, for life and godliness or a godly life. Now, you say, well, what does it mean, a godly life? Well, a godly life is a life that's like God. And, of course, the ultimate expression of a godly life is the life of Jesus, who's God in human flesh. So I take it really you could just translate this Uh, Christ-likeness or being like Jesus. So by his divine power that's, that's infinite, God has granted to every believer everything that we need to live a godly life, to live a life like the life of Jesus, to be like uh, the Lord Jesus. Now, one of the things that comes up in our lives a lot as believers is I think a lot of us have a sense sometimes that we're lacking something, don't we? Yeah, we need something more. Is there something else I need to get that I don't have yet? Um, And that's, I think, what the enemy wants us to go through our lives thinking. You know, somehow I've got a deficiency. 
I need some new experience or some miracle or some vision or some extra revelation or some second blessing or something that I don't have or I'm missing. I know I've told this story before, but it's one of my favorite stories about uh, a man named Danny Simpson back in Ottawa, Canada, back in uh, 1990. He went in and robbed a bank in Canada and got $6,000, and for that he got six years in prison. But what was later discovered is the 45 Colt pistol he used was made by Ross Rifle Company in 1918, and it was worth $100,000. <laughs> so he had everything he needed in his hand, and he's going to rob a bank to try to get something for himself. And I think of us as believers that way. We have everything we need in our hands. But sometimes we have this illusion that somehow we need uh, something more. But, but the truth of the Bible is simply this. By being a Christian, we have access to everything we need to live a life that pleases God. Through our salvation, God has given us everything we need to become like Christ. Uh, Warren Wiersbe puts it like this. When you're born into the family of God by faith in Christ, you're born complete. God gives you everything you will ever need. Just as a normal baby is born with all the equipment he needs for life and only needs to grow, so the Christian has all that is needed and he only needs to grow. That's a beautiful picture. We're, we're born as, as complete babies in Christ and we have everything we need to grow. So this powerful provision of God, though, carries a great responsibility with it for us because this lays the accountability squarely on us. If God has given us everything we need to live a godly life and we aren't living a godly life, then who's to blame, right? Who's at fault for this? Well, the answer is it's you and me because we have everything we need to live a life that pleases God. There's no exceptions. There's no excuses. So we have no excuse for not living a godly life. Now, we come up with all kinds of them, right? all kinds of excuses about why we're not living the way we should. But truth be told, every one of us here, through faith in Christ, we have what we need. Now, the problem is, if we're honest, we often feel inadequate. We feel like we're, we're lacking something. Um, sometimes we may feel like, you know, in my marriage, I'm just lacking something in my marriage. I'm lacking something that I need as a parent. I'm lacking something maybe as a business person. Maybe I'm lacking something as an employee or as a teacher. Or maybe I feel like I'm lacking something as a pastor or whatever it is. Sometimes we have this sense that we're inadequate. It's like a cartoon that shows a couple of cows out in the pasture. They're looking over the fence at the traffic going by on the highway. And a milk truck passes and on the side panel it says, Johnson's milk, pasteurized, homogenized, vitamin C and D added. And one of the cows looked at the other and says, sort of makes you feel inadequate, doesn't it? <laughs> and I think we often feel that way in life, especially maybe as we look at other people going by. Maybe they look a lot more impressive than us and look like they have a lot more than us, and it makes us feel inadequate. And of course, we're inadequate in ourselves. There's no doubt about that. We're, we're totally inadequate in ourselves. But 2 Corinthians 3, 5, and 6 says this, not that we consider ourselves adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from us, but our adequacy is from God, who's made us adequate as ministers of a new covenant. So it is true that in ourselves, we're woefully inadequate. But in Christ, we have everything we need to live a life that pleases God. We're adequate in Him. Uh, believers have received everything in the form of divine power to equip us. So there's no lack in us 
as believers. Now think about Peter is writing this. He, he's not long before his death, probably in his late 60s, maybe 70 years of age. And he literally walked on the earth with Jesus for three years. He'd seen who Jesus is and who he was. And he'd seen all the power that Jesus had and his sufficiency. Now, a good question to ask at this point is, how do we get all of this, though? How do we receive it? We receive all of what we need by being converted, by coming to Christ. Notice in verse 3 what it says here. He's granted us everything we need to live a godly life through the knowledge of Him who called us by His own glory and excellence. We get all of this by coming to know God through Jesus Christ, by being converted, by being saved, whatever synonym you want to use. Uh, John 17, 3, Jesus said, This is life eternal, that they might know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you've sent. Becoming a believer, receiving eternal life, happens when we come to know God. We know Him through placing our faith and our trust in Him through Jesus Christ. So what this is saying is you get everything you need to live a godly life through the knowledge of him who called us when you come to know him. In fact, the the New Living Translation says we have received all of this by coming to know him. And notice it says by coming to know him who called us. So we come to know God personally. We put our trust in him. But it's God who initiates this whole process by calling us to himself Uh, through the work of the Holy Spirit. In fact, if you go down in verse 10, he's going to say, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you. So God is the one who takes the initiative. We're called into our knowledge of him by the Holy Spirit uh, through Jesus Christ. So we can never come uh, to this true knowledge unless God comes and calls us. And notice it says here, he calls us by his own glory and excellence. That's how he calls us. Now, his glory and excellence, I take, means the glorious excellence of Jesus Christ. When God comes and calls a lost sinner to himself, That person perceives the beauty and the loveliness and the moral character of Jesus and is attracted to that. The character of Jesus becomes beautiful and attractive to us, and we trust in Jesus Christ uh, for salvation. We trust in him to be our Savior. Whenever we have Jesus revealed to us and God calls us to salvation, we want to know him more than we want anything else in this world because we see his moral beauty and his excellence, and he becomes attractive to us. It's like Saul on the the road to Damascus. He's killing Christians and persecuting those who follow Jesus, and he's struck down there, and he sees the, the risen, glorified Christ. And he says, Lord, who are you, and what do you want me to do? Jesus became the most attractive, glorious, excellent, magnificent person to him in all the world, and he immediately surrendered to him and trusted in him. So what God does for someone who's lost and who doesn't know him is God comes and calls that person and he calls them by revealing to them the glory and the excellence and the beauty of Jesus Christ. And through that, they want him and desire him and they trust in him and take him uh, to be their savior. So when that happens, we receive all of the riches that God has for us in Jesus Christ. So that's the secret of our success, if you will. All these riches are our birthright. And they tell us that you and I have a sufficient salvation. 
So the power of Christ gives us everything we need to live a godly life when we come to know Christ. Now think about that for a moment. You have everything you need to have a godly marriage. There's not anything else you need outside of what God has given you to have a godly marriage. You have everything you need to be a godly parent. You have everything you need to to stand firm in the trials of life. You have everything you need to stand in uh, financial difficulties you may be enduring right now or whatever it is. You and I have what we need. Now, the question is, and this is a big one, how do we download what we have? So I've got all these spiritual riches, but how do I lay hold of those and how do I access them? That's verse 4, and I call this God's promises. It's the promises of God through which we access the power of God and His provision. Notice he says in verse 4, for by these, by these means, referring back to verse 3, his glory and excellence. So by his glory and his excellence, he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises. Now the word has granted is uh, the same verb used back in verse 3. So by these, by God's glory and his excellence, he's granted to us precious and magnificent promises. Or you could call it precious or, or very great or magnificent promises. Now, I've done quite a bit of reading on this the last few weeks, and one man, a reliable source, said that there are 7,847 promises in the Bible. Another man claimed to have counted 8,810 promises in the Bible. I'm not sure the exact number, but let's say it's 7,000 to 9,000, you know, somewhere in that range. That's a lot of promises that are found in the Bible. And he calls these precious, magnificent promises that God has given to us. Uh, John Wesley, back when he was converted to Christ, back in 1730, as he was reading the Bible and and, and under conviction, uh, he said this, all these days I scarce remember to have opened the New Testament, but upon some great and precious promise. Again, he's referring to this verse. And I saw more than ever before that the gospel is in truth, but one great promise from the beginning of it to the end. And in essence, in some ways, that's true, that the gospel is just one great promise that God has given to us. And we see a lot of that here in 2 Peter. Chapter 1, verse 9, he talks about the forgiveness of our sins. Over in chapter 3 and verse 4, where's the promise of his coming? There's a promise that Christ is coming back. Uh, Down in uh, verse 11, since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what kind of people should we be in holy conduct and godliness? Down in uh, verse 9 of that passage, God is not slow about his promise as some count slowness. Uh, Verse 13, but according to his promise, we're looking for new heavens and a new earth. So even here in 2 Peter, he mentions several promises of God related to the future and uh, the new age that's coming. Now, 2 Peter is one of the most future-oriented books in the New Testament. When you think about the the precious, magnificent promises of God, uh, there's so many of them, and I'd like to be able to read hundreds of them today, but maybe today you're confused in your life about priorities. Matthew 6.33 says, Seek first the kingdom of God. All these things will be added to you. It's a promise from God. Maybe you're tired today and worn down. Jesus said in Matthew 11, Come unto me, all you who labor heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I'm gentle and humble in heart, and you'll find rest for your souls. Promise for those who are tired and weary. 
Maybe you're discouraged. And Jesus in John 14 said, don't let your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go and prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Uh, maybe you're afraid today of something that you're facing in life. Hebrews 13:5, uh, the Bible tells us that God says, I'll never leave you, I'll never forsake you. Maybe you're shaken today of something that's happened in your life. Psalm 55, 22 says, cast your burden on the Lord. He will sustain you. He will never allow the righteous to be shaken. And on and on and on we could go of these great and magnificent promises that fill the pages of Scripture. Let me just say this before we move on. In, in, in Romans 10, 17, maybe the greatest promise in the Bible, it certainly is the greatest promise this morning if you don't know the Lord. Romans 10, 17 says, whoever will call upon the name of the Lord will be saved. If you've never done that, that's what you need to do this morning because all these riches we're talking about here this morning, they're not yours if you don't know the Lord through Jesus Christ. So you can come to know him today by calling upon his name and asking him to forgive your sins and give you the gift of eternal life. So that's the promise that you need to access this morning if you don't know Christ. And you think about this with, with, with Peter here. God's promises, I'm sure, were more precious to Peter now than any time in his life. In a Roman prison, getting ready to be crucified any day. I mean, he's clinging to and holding on uh, to the promises of God. And the whole Bible is really a vault that's filled with infinite riches. And everything you and I need is stored away in the vault of God's Word, and we open it with the key of faith. That's how we lay hold of these promises. And our God is a promise keeper. He's a promise maker. In fact, one person I read this week made a beautiful statement, said, we are people of the promise. That's really a great way to describe a believer. We're people of the promise. We've received God's promises and we bank on them. And we filter all of life through the promises of God. We access our spiritual provisions through these promises. Um, Max Lucado says this, it's God's great and precious promises that lead us into a new reality, a holy environment. They're direction signs intended to guide us away from the toxic swampland and into the clean air of heaven. They are strong boulders that form the bridge over which we walk from sin to salvation. And then he says this, this is beautiful. Promises are the stitching and the spine of the Bible. That's a great way to put it. I was, I was arrested by that statement as I read it this week. I've thought about it over and over again. The promises of God are the stitching in the spine of the Bible. It's really the promises of God that, that hold the Scriptures together, really from Genesis to Revelation. And you may be here today and may have some financial problems or difficulties. You may feel poor. Listen to these words of D.L. Moody, the great evangelist. He said, let a man feed for a month on the promises of God, and he'll not talk about how poor he is. If you'd only read from Genesis to Revelation, see all the promises of God to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to the Jews, to the Gentiles, and all his people everywhere, if you could spend a month feeding on the promises of God, you wouldn't go about complaining how poor you are. You would lift up your head with confidence and proclaim the riches of his grace because you couldn't help it. It's a great way to look at life. Every one of us here are rich, and I hope we realize that spiritually. The promises of God are our spiritual riches that God has lavished upon us. Many of you know uh, the name Hudson Taylor. 
I've uh, done a lot of reading about his life. He's the man that I've uh, referred to before and said that someone said of him, his was a life worth looking into. I'm a godly man, founded the China Inland Mission that did tremendous work for God. That's a great story about Hudson Taylor. He, he went in to get an application form uh, to open a bank account for the China Inland Mission years ago. And on the application form to open this bank account, it asked for an asset list. And this is what uh, Hudson Taylor wrote down as the sum total of his assets, $10 and all the promises of God. And of course, God took that and used it mightily to spread the gospel throughout uh, that part of the world. But think about that next time you feel poor, however much money you have, you can look at that and say, this is what I've got. But along with that, all the promises of God. Now, let me issue a very important caveat here that that a lot of people don't issue when they talk about promises. Um, People read the Bible and claim the promises of the Bible. Not every promise in the Bible is for you and me. I hope you all know that. Uh, There are promises in the Bible that are national promises to the nation of Israel that are not for us and they're not for America. And there are individual promises in the Bible made to particular people that are not for us. You know, God made a promise to Abraham, right, to give him descendants, uh, to give him the land of Canaan, and uh, to, to, through him all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, God never promised me many descendants. He never promised me the land of Canaan, and he never promised that all the nations of the earth would be blessed through me. That was an individual promise to Abraham. So we have to be careful. I hear sometimes people claiming promises in the Bible that are a promise to an individual that was specific to them or a promise to the nation of Israel. So we have to make sure when we're reading. Now, it's not that difficult in the context to figure it out, so I don't want to make this complicated for you. But just look in the context, who is this promise to? Remember when I was a little boy, we'd sing that song, every promise in the book is mine, every chapter, every verse, every line, all the blessings of his love divine, every promise in the book is mine. Well, that was actually a wrong song theologically, right? Every promise in the book is not mine, Uh, Some of them are for other groups of people. Some are national for Israel or for maybe a Gentile nation. Um, Some are individual. But you'll be able to see from the context. So don't go claim some outlandish promise in the Bible that God never made to you. We can read promises in the New Testament and many in the Psalms and other places that, that that are promises God has given to us. But many, many, many of the promises in the Bible are for us and to us. And we need uh, to lay hold of them. Um, It's a key to our spiritual growth. Uh, One one person wrote it like this. The heroes in the Bible came from all walks of life, rulers, servants, teachers, doctors. They were male, female, single, and married. Yet one common denominator united them. They built their lives on the promises of God. Because of God's promise, Noah believed in rain before rain was a word. Because of God's promise, Abraham left a good home for one he'd never seen. Because of God's promises, Joshua led two million people into enemy territory. Because of God's promises, David conked a giant. Peter rose from the ashes of regret, and Paul found a grace worth dying for. One writer went so far as to call such saints heirs of the promise. It's as if the promise was the family fortune, and they were smart enough to attend the reading of the will. That's what the Bible is. It's a book that's filled with promises. Many of those promises are for us. So what we've seen here is God's given us everything we need to live a godly life. We access that through the promises of God, through through reading those promises, having faith in them and claiming them. 
Now, why does God provide us with all these resources through his promises? Well, that brings us to God's purpose, the end of verse 4. Notice you'll read the words, the middle of verse 4, so that. It's a purpose clause. So that by them, by these promises, you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that's in the world by lust. So the goal of all of this is a positive and a negative. The positive is that we would become more like Christ. He says that you might become partakers of the divine nature. Now, this is not talking about deification. It's not talking about us becoming little gods. Uh, We're not absorbed into deity when we become a believer. In fact, that's impossible. We're creatures, and we will always be creatures. I don't, don't know if you've ever thought about this before, but even God can't make another God. Because any God that God would make would by definition have a beginning and would therefore be finite and dependent upon God for its existence. So God can never transfer deity to a creature. So what this means here that we become partakers of the divine nature, I think simply means that we become more like him. It's talking about the process of us becoming more and more like him, more and more like Jesus Christ. I think it's very similar to what we have in verse 3 of living a godly life. It's a life that's being lived in the image of God and the image of Jesus Christ. So as we spend time in God's word and we access the promises of God, and we, by that we access God's power, we begin to look more and more like him. We become a partaker of the divine nature. I read a statement by David Jeremiah a while back. He said this, Have you ever heard that married couples who live together long enough start to look alike? He said, This isn't a myth. Scientists say the emotional interactions within a marriage, a couple's diet and environment and their hobbies and exercise, all can create similar complexions. Plus, partners tend to imitate each other's habits and body language. According to University of Michigan psychologist Robert Zajonk, the happier a couple is, the more likely they are to have increased physical similarity. And then he says, it's the same in our relationship with God. When we spend time with God through Christ, drawing from his power and living by his promises, he fulfills his purpose in us bit by bit, making us look more and more like our Savior. Now, I read this to Cheryl this week, and I don't know if she was that encouraged about the looking like each other. I mean, hopefully I'm looking more like her and not the other way around. But anyway, it is true, though. I mean, I think we all realize that. But, but he's saying here, look, as we spend more time with God and his word, and we claim the promises of God, and we access these promises of God, God changes us into his image little by little, and we become partakers of the divine nature. That's the positive. The positive of all of this is God wants us to look more like Jesus. And the negative at the end of verse 4 is having escaped the corruption that's in the world through lust. So God wants us by this process to look more and more like Jesus and to look less and less like the world. The word corruption, there's a word that means something decomposing or, or something ruined or rotten. And there's a lot of rotten stuff in this world today. And he says we're to escape that that's in the world by lust. Now, the the word lust we often associate with sexual desire, but it just refers, in fact, it can refer to good or bad desires. In this context, it's bad. But it just refers to evil passions or the desires of the human heart. 
So God wants us to escape the rottenness and, and the decomposing uh, uh, filth that's in this world, that, that's in this world by lust. It's through the evil desires of the human heart. So what he's saying here is, is through Christ and through his promises, sin can lose its pull and its fascination on our lives. And that should happen more and more as we grow into the image of Jesus. We can become less and less like this world. So the goal or the purpose of all of this is simply to become more like Jesus and to become less like the world. That's what God uh, desires for us. So look, God has given us his power. He's given us his power. He's given us everything that you and I need to live a godly life. And we access that through the promises of God. And as we do that, God's goal for us and his purpose is for us to look more like Jesus and to look less like the world. And so your assignment this week for all of us is to read the Bible, as I pray you do regularly, and find a promise for yourself. Find a promise and claim that promise and memorize that promise. Again, maybe it's, you're struggling with fear or an addiction or a financial need or something in your family. But begin to lay hold of that promise and filter your life and your thinking through that promise and make it your own. And the next time you face some difficulty or hurdle in life, find another promise. and Lay hold of a promise that's related to that issue in your life and, and memorize it and make it part of your life. And God's power through God's promises will take hold in your life and you'll become more and more like Christ and less and less uh, like this world in which we live. Most of you know the name of William Randolph Hearst, the great 20th century uh, newspaper publisher, avid art collector. Uh, one day, uh, Mr. Hearst uh, was reading a description of a valuable piece of art and he just had to have it. And he, so he commissioned his agent to go out and find it wherever it was and buy it regardless of cost. So after months of searching, the agent reported back that he finally located the treasure. To the surprise of Hearst, this priceless masterpiece was stored in his own warehouse where his art collection was kept. He'd been searching all over the world for a treasure uh, that he already possessed. Um, had he read the catalog of his own treasures, he would have known that what he longed for was already his. It already belonged to him. And it's the same this morning for you and for me. Whatever we need is already stored away in the vault of God's word. And you and I can open it with the key of faith. God's promises are available to you and me today to enrich us, to meet our needs, to make us more like Christ, to make us less like this world. And so my prayer is that individuals, as individuals, as, as families, I mean, as an entire church, that God will, will motivate us and encourage us and help us to appropriate what we have as God's people and to encourage one another in that. Sometimes when we're down or we're discouraged, maybe a, we, we, we can meet another believer. One of us will come alongside and remind us of all that we have uh, in Jesus Christ. Look, the good news this morning for you and for me, for your family, for your marriage, for your finances, for whatever it is, you have everything you need. That's good news uh, for us today. Well, let's pray together. Father, if there's someone here this morning outside of Christ, the greatest need they have right now is Jesus. We pray that you'd move them this morning, that you'd call them, 
by his glory and his excellence. They'd see the beauty, the attractiveness of Jesus Christ and his excellence and glory. They'd call upon you and they'd be saved this morning through Jesus Christ our Lord. Father, for those of us who know you, whatever problem we're facing today, Lord, may we lay hold of your precious and magnificent promises. And through that, get access to everything we have, everything we need to to live for you. Father, I'm sure many of us here today feel very inadequate in many ways in our lives, and certainly we are in ourselves. But, oh, Father, help us to leave here today realizing we have everything we need. We're adequate in you. There's no shortage. Oh, Father, help us to lay hold of that and trust in it. Help us to encourage one another, Lord, in these promises you've given to us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.